Hello, I'm Sarah Pollock and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today we ask, can the EU and the UK overcome a major lack of trust to solve their dispute over Northern Ireland? Before we were worried about COVID-19, we were worried about Brexit. And every so often, the unfinished business of Brexit bubbles up again. This week, as the UK and the EU continued a dispute over trade rules in Northern Ireland, the temperature rose to levels we haven't seen in a while. We didn't want it to be like this. We just want friendly relations, free trade and the chance to do things our own way. In a speech on Tuesday, Lord David Frost, the UK's Brexit minister, suggested calmly but provocatively that the EU had tried to use Northern Ireland to stop Brexit from happening. There's a widespread feeling in the UK that the EU did try to use Northern Ireland to encourage UK political forces to reverse the referendum result, or at least to keep us closely aligned with the EU. While Frost explained why the UK wants to renegotiate the agreement about Northern Ireland, he rejected the idea that the EU was being reasonable while the UK was an untrustworthy partner. From our perspective, we look at the EU and we don't always see an organisation that seems to want to get back to constructive working together. And then Dominic Cummings got involved. The former advisor to Boris Johnson suggested it was the intention all along to break parts of the Brexit deal. Thonishtalia Vrakar helped craft that deal and when asked about what Cummings had said, he couldn't resist responding. Those comments are very alarming because that would indicate that this is a government administration that acted in bad faith um, and that message uh, needs to be heard around the world. Dennis Staunton is the Irish Times London editor. Dennis, it's been a big week in the never-ending Brexit process and I want to talk to you about what's happening with the Northern Ireland Protocol, as it's known. But first... What did you think of the rhetoric we just heard there from Varadkar? It seems like relations between the UK and the EU and the UK and Ireland are at a very low ebb. I think there have been so many low ebbs over the last few years that uh, competition for the very lowest ebb is pretty stiff. <laughs> and I think things have possibly been worse than they are now. But I think what, in a way, makes it a little bit worse now is that As you say, here we are two years on from the protocol having been agreed and we're still arguing about it and uh, with accusations of bad faith all round. And so I think what has caused the problem in a sense in terms of the the difficulty in the relationships is that David Frost's argument essentially is we signed this deal at a time when we were in uh, very difficult political straits in London because remember at the time they agreed the deal uh, it was... October 2019 and Boris Johnson was leading a minority government Mm -hmm. and uh, he was at war with his own parliament and then he sort of did the deal with Leo Varadkar as you remember and then in December 2019 he won an election with an 80 seat majority but by then it was kind of too late to change what he was signing because he had won the election saying I've got the deal done so he agreed the deal Mm -hmm. and now what they're really saying is well actually we'd really like the deal that we could have got if we were in a stronger position at home. And there are things about this that we don't like. So just to give listeners a quick refresher, the Northern Ireland Protocol effectively keeps the North in the EU single market for goods. It avoids a hard border with Ireland at the cost of additional bureaucratic barriers for goods crossing from Britain. And a lot of people in Northern Ireland are very unhappy with it. It must go. There shouldn't be any internal border within the United Kingdom. At this stage with these protocols, I think that the anger is the hast that I've seen it. 
Many unionists and loyalists say it's not enough to just alter the protocol, that it must be ripped up and replaced. And David Frost, he agrees. This week, he presented the legal text of a proposed new protocol to replace the old one. Can you remind us, Dennis, what is it about the original protocol that they all object to so strongly? What unionists fundamentally object to with the protocol is that it treats Northern Ireland differently from the rest of the United Kingdom. And so for the purposes of goods, Northern Ireland remains part of the European Union. It remains under EU rules. Consequently, Great Britain is treated as if it's a third country, a country outside of the orbit that Northern Ireland is in. And what that means is that you have to have certain checks, you have to go through certain procedures. So if, for example, you want to get some cheese over from England, coming over to Northern Ireland, then the cheese uh, provider is going to have to fill in all these kind of forms. And quite a lot of the time, they couldn't be bothered to do it. So you can't get your cheese. So there are all kinds of, of irritations. And these irritations then remind people of the fact that what they feel is happening is that they're being pushed economically into a united Ireland, and that that somehow is, uh, you know, every day that their Britishness is being eroded. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing which David Frost does doesn't like about it is that uh, it gives a role to the European Court of Justice uh, in determining uh, some conflicts because basically because EU rules continue to operate in Northern Ireland, some of them, uh, the ultimate arbiter of what is within the rules or not is the European Court of Justice. And so uh, he's saying basically you can't really have this kind of arbitration where one side does all the arbitration. The protocol is not working. It's completely lost consent in one community in Northern Ireland. It's not doing the thing it was set up to do, protect the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. In fact, doing the opposite. It has to change. Who is David Frost? Can you tell us a bit about him, his political and professional background? And why did Boris Johnson give him this important role as Brexit minister? David Frost was a British diplomat. He had a number of jobs where he became uh, ambassador to Denmark. That was the highest position that he achieved in the diplomatic service. And then at a certain stage, he left and became the chief executive of the Scotch Whiskey Association, which is not as strange as it sounds because (laughs) the Scotch Whiskey Association often employs former diplomats as uh, as their head because they want to have access to markets in faraway places and diplomats know how to get around. So he did this job. And then when Boris Johnson under Theresa May uh, became foreign secretary, you might remember, uh, not for all that long. He then uh, brought David Frost in as an advisor. And at some stage along this process, an epiphany occurred because while David Frost was head of the Scotch Whiskey Association, mm-hmm. he was arguing in favour of remaining in the European Union because that was going to be important for the business. Okay. And none of his colleagues ever remember him as a diplomat being particularly Eurosceptic. You know, when we get to the referendum, um, you know, I hope it is a real debate about everything that, that Europe offers. Although estimates vary about, you know, how much wealth the single market generates for the UK uh, since we joined, it's probably in the order of five, six, seven, eight percent um, uplift to GDP. You know, for somebody on an average salary, that's about 
But he says that actually his experience of dealing with the European Union had actually brought uh, raised doubts in his mind. So he became something of a soulmate for uh, Boris Johnson. Mm. And so then when Boris Johnson went into government, he brought him in uh, to replace Theresa May's uh, group and made him the chief negotiator. And the idea was that he was going to take a much tougher line with Michel Barnier and the Europeans. Personally, David Frost is a very diffident sort of person. He's rather bookish. He likes the opera. He's particularly interested in Wagner. He's a very sort of mm. soft-spoken person to meet. But he's an extremely tough person when it comes to rhetoric. And he has developed this rhetoric of uh, you know, a really quite bombastic kind of rhetoric when he's speaking to and about the European Union. And within Downing Street, he kind of became part of the so-called vote leave faction around Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane, the real, the ultras, the people who kind of believed in breaking the rules and getting, uh, you know, getting their way no matter what happened. And so then when some of them were sacked or left uh, last year, uh, mm-hmm. then there was a question mark over what was going to happen to him. Was David Frost going to walk as well? But in fact, then Boris promoted him and he put him into the House of Lords and he also made him a full cabinet minister. So he, he's in there in the cabinet. He has a direct line to Boris Johnson. And what people in Downing Street say is the only person in Downing Street who's more hardline on the protocol and on, and on Brexit than David Frost is Boris Johnson. And one other thing that David Frost said in his speech this week, as he has said before, was that the UK could suspend the Northern Ireland Protocol if the EU won't, and I quote, improve upon the terms of the protocol. Can the UK do that? Can it suspend the protocol unilaterally? Well, Article 16 of the protocol says that either of the parties can unilaterally suspend parts of the protocol if these individual aspects of the protocol are causing various kinds of problems, if they're causing kind of civil unrest, or one of the reasons would be if it's causing a diversion of trade. Now, uh, David Frost says that there is no question but that this uh, threshold has been reached, that there is clearly a diversion of trade. He would say that there's disquiet, that there are all kinds of other reasons. And so uh, so he thinks that he, that he actually could trigger Article 16. The problem with Article 16, from his point of view, is it's quite a narrow article because what you have to do is you choose which parts to suspend and then why. And then you enter into a whole new process of negotiation so that you say, I want to suspend these parts of the protocol and the Europeans then uh, enter into negotiations with you. They see if they can fix it in some way and if they can't, then it goes on and then and then eventually you can do it. The second problem, of course, is that if they do uh, unilaterally suspend parts of the protocol, then it is possible for the Europeans to retaliate in various ways. What, of course, the uh, British government could do, and it would be illegal, and it would be outside the terms of the agreement with the European Union, is that they could simply legislate unilaterally. You may remember again last year, the Internal Market Bill, which was a piece of legislation that the British government introduced, which included clauses which said, we are going to be allowed to unilaterally just drop bits or all of the protocol anytime we like. And then they withdrew those clauses after they did some kind of a deal with the European Union. And so it, it is possible that they would do something like that. But that's very much a nuclear option. That is really saying we are just blowing up the treaty that we signed. If the protocol is overturned, 
what will be the immediate impact on the lives of the people of Northern Ireland? Well, I think what would probably happen would be that the British government would simply apply the rules that they were proposing in their command papers so that essentially anything which was uh, any goods coming from Great Britain which were destined for the uh, for Northern Ireland would be subject to no checks and it would only be if it was quite clear that it was certainly going across the border into the European Union that then they would be subject to something. And uh, at the same time, they have this idea of dual regulation so that uh, at the moment, under the protocol, goods in Northern Ireland must comply with EU regulations. What they're saying is that actually, if they apply, if they comply with EU regulations, fine. But if they don't, and they comply with UK regulations, if they change, that's okay too. So they would just sort of apply rules unilaterally as they wish to. Uh, that would obviously create other problems because the European Union would feel that its border, the border into its single market was not being protected. You just don't know what's coming in. And one example that one of the uh, European officials put it to me was that, you know, we in Ireland could have suddenly a big food safety problem if, say, something comes in uh, from Britain entirely unchecked. And don't forget that Britain at the moment is not uh, controlling its own borders uh, from Dover, for example. So, uh, so all of this stuff can come in. It's unchecked. It then comes into uh, to Ireland. Something happens. And then, of course, if you do have some kind of, say, animal health problem, that is clearly going to create a problem for Ireland. Uh, and the whole island essentially would be cut off from a food safety point of view. Coming up, could the dreaded no deal that was so feared in Ireland still happen? The EU has an unwavering commitment to the people of Northern Ireland. This week, the EU announced the changes it says it's willing to make on how the Northern Ireland Protocol works. And this includes the removal of many of the checks on goods coming from Britain into Northern Ireland and less red tape. We have put a lot of hard work uh, into this package. We explored every possible angle of the protocol and at times went beyond current EU law. And as our colleague Naomi O'Leary reported from Brussels, the EU Commission went much further than what many within the EU wanted. But the EU's proposed changes, they don't go as far as what David Frost has been demanding. So where do the EU's proposals fall short of what the UK wants? Well, these are a kind of a basis for negotiation. The European Union was very careful to say this is not a kind of a take it or leave it offer. So it's left some of the details pretty vague, but it's basically saying we're prepared, as you say, to go a very long way to dealing with things. And I, th- and I think that, uh, you know, if these things come to fruition, then they would deal with most of the practical problems that people complain about in Northern Ireland, access to medicines, the kind of cumbersome nature of checks and procedures for goods coming in. It would certainly make uh, things easier from that point of view. The big problem and the big gap from the, uh, the British side is this issue of the role of the European Court of Justice, which for Britain is a sovereignty question. And the leaders of uh, the three main unionist parties in Northern Ireland 
are backing David Frost in this, saying this is a, a, a crucially important element of it all. Uh, now, they never mentioned it before, but it, but they're mentioning it now because this is now the British policy. And um, and so, so I think that it may come down to uh, trying to find some compromise on that. It's difficult for the European Union because although it's uh, mostly theoretical, actually, like nothing has ever gone so far to the European Court of Justice uh, for resolution, and it's unlikely to get there uh, very often. But nonetheless, it may be that uh, what some uh, people in Britain are talking about is there could be some sort of compromise where the uh, the role of the European Court of Justice is restricted. Uh, again, I think the Europeans will be reluctant to go there too much because of, partly because it would actually involve a kind of a rewriting of the protocol rather than just a kind of a reinterpretation of the rules. How likely do you think it is that a compromise will be found? Well, I think it's always possible. Uh, it's also possible that uh, what you actually find, and you often find in negotiations, is that they agree on most things. And then when it comes to this final thing, that actually one side wins, but they manage to put a gloss on it where it looks as if it was a compromise. Uh, or there's a minor compromise, which looks like a major compromise. I mean, I think it's, you know, in, in these negotiations, uh, anything is possible, particularly if, as in this case, it is actually in the interest of both sides for... Uh, some resolution to be found, particularly if it can be a lasting resolution. I think what we're heading for now is a longish period of negotiation, certainly a number of weeks, which could bring us up towards Christmas. Now, it, uh, the noise is coming from Britain. The expectation in London is that they'll go through the next few weeks of negotiations, that they won't quite reach the point that they want to get to, and that then the the British government will trigger Article 16. But the big question is, how will they do it? And their thinking at the moment is that they would do it in a very narrow way. So in other words, it would also almost be a gesture. That, because what it does then is that it moves the negotiations onto a new phase. And so it kind of resets them and adds a certain urgency to them. So in a sense, Article 16 would be an instrument within the negotiating process. And then after that, the talks could go on into Christmas, over Christmas, through Christmas, beyond Christmas, and then at some stage in the new year, if all goes well, you get a deal. On the EU side, how far do you think the EU is willing to go in this battle? Could the EU even rescind the trade and cooperation agreement that was signed in 2020? Could the dreaded no deal that was so feared in Ireland because how of how it would affect our economy and our border with Northern Ireland, could that still happen? It could happen. Uh, I think you have to think about the way the European Union negotiates. It negotiates, first of all, uh, within itself. If it agrees a position among the 27 member states and with the Commission, and then the Commission goes and represents that. So, uh, in a sense, uh, although the European Union is saying this is not a take-it-or-leave-it offer, in some ways it is, because if the European Union wants to make any major concessions, it has to go back to the member states and get a new mandate or get its mandate changed to do that. And so the problem would be if uh, Boris Johnson and David Frost decide to really play hardball, or if, for example, they decided in a difficult political climate that it's in their interests to keep some kind of dispute with the European Union going. In Britain, in London, their calculation is that the European Union doesn't have the stomach for the fight. That may not be the case mm. because uh, Emmanuel Macron is pretty fed up 
for lots of other reasons, including this nuclear deal with Australia and the United States that Britain went behind uh, France's back to agree to. And also he's got an election coming up in May. And so there are various incentives to be quite tough with Britain on this. And one of the options, and in a way the simplest option, instead of kind of having targeted sanctions, would be to say, look, you are undermining our entire agreement. We are now just suspending the entire trade agreement. And that would mean that there would be full tariffs, limits on access, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, and, um, uh, and so that, and that would have a huge impact on the British economy, but obviously it would have an impact on the Irish economy as well. Of course. And how does Boris Johnson fit into all, all this situation? Do you think it's true that he had no idea what the deal really meant when the Northern Irish Protocol was agreed to, as Dominic Cummings claimed this week in his tweets? I don't know. Uh, it, 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 that may be the case. What I do know is that absolutely everybody uh, around Boris Johnson will say that Boris Johnson isn't the most hardline person in the room on all these issues. And he's also, there's a reckless quality about him. He is comfortable in chaos. There's a quote from Chairman Mao, everything under the heavens is chaos, the situation is perfect. And uh, and that is, in a way, the world in which Boris Johnson operates. And so he's, a high, he's, he's had political success by acting unpredictably. And, uh, and so it's not quite clear. So, for example, at the time when this protocol was agreed, or the outline of, of it was agreed with Leo Varadkar in October of 2019, it looked as if everything was heading for the rocks. And then suddenly Boris Johnson had a quick change of course and agreed this. He's capable of doing that, but he's also capable of pulling the house down and of doing all kinds of unilateral things. So he's a very unpredictable element within it. And that unpredictability has often been something he could use to his advantage. Another thing Cummings revealingly said in one of those tweets this week was that cheating foreigners is part of the job of the UK government. And I've read that in the EU, there's a lot of anger about this and that the British government's reputation is in tatters over the situation. How hard do you think will it be for this relationship to be repaired? Well, I think that uh, relationship has been in tatters in a way for some time, or the reputation has, because because the fact is that over the last few years that uh, the British government has gone back on its word, it has welched on deals that it has made. Uh, you know, it's it has shown itself that it's, it's shown that it doesn't feel bound by agreements it makes with other people. And so, in a way, what Dominic Cummings did was that he just put it, uh, you know, in more uh, dramatic and in, in starker terms than what actually. Uh, you know, most of Britain's interlocutors feel to be the case. Mm. You know, it, it, it took something to get the name of Perfidious Albion, and certainly this particular uh, government appears to be living up to it. They, you know, they, they almost don't pretend to be operating in good faith. And, and certainly, I mean, it's hard to suggest that having made a deal, having gone into it, having voted for it, having pushed it through the House of Commons, every single MP from the Conservative Party voting for it, that you now say, well, we had no idea what we were signing up to. It doesn't really add up. What about here in Ireland, finally? How do you think the relationship going forward will be now as we move forward in the negotiations in the weeks and months to come? I think the relationship between uh, London and Dublin is difficult, partly because of the protocol, but also because of other issues to do with, for example, the legacy of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. But 
the thing about Britain and Ireland is that we're stuck with each other because we're next door to one another. And there are certain enduring relationships, deeper relationships, which are relationships between people, the fact that so many people have relations in one part or the other. And there are all kinds of networks of relationships, which mean that even if intergovernmental relationships get bad, there are all kinds of other structures to uh, to support the relationship and to enable it to get back onto a good footing uh, just when circumstances change. Dennis, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. That's all for today. You can read more from Dennis Staunton on the Northern Irish Protocol and Brexit at irishtimes.com. In the news, we'll be back on Monday.